Well, if you've got a Bible today, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 7. We're continuing our study uh, in the book of Acts. We've been at this for a while. Last week, we looked at the speech of Stephen, uh, 53 verses in Acts chapter 7. We're going to pick things up after that. And I entitled this message, Death and Life. So that is the opposite order from which we usually uh, talk about those word, those two words, right? Usually we talk about life and death. But the passage we're looking at today is actually a reminder that sometimes that order gets reversed, that the death comes first and then life somehow springs out of it. Now, when, when I say that, I'm not actually referring to the resurrection, the fact that we will experience life after death, as important as that is and as much as that is emphasized in the New Testament. That's not specifically what I'm referring to. Uh, I'm also not talking about the, the life that we gained from the death of Jesus, though again, you find lots of uh, verses that speak to that throughout the New Testament, that Jesus' death uh, gave us new life. We became new creations in Christ. What I am referring to is the way that sometimes a single death ends up altering history in a surprising way. That life somehow springs out of death. And one of my favorite stories about that is a story that I've shared with you uh, once before. It's a story about uh, an Asiatic monk who lived uh, in the 4th century. He spent most of his time in a remote community of prayer and raising vegetables for the cloister kitchen And when he was not tending to his garden spot, he was fulfilling his vocation of study and prayer. And then one day, this monk named Telemachus felt the Lord wanted him to go to Rome, the capital of the world, the busiest, the wealthiest, the biggest city in the world at the time. And Telemachus had no idea why he should go there. He was terrified at the thought of of traveling to Rome. But as he prayed, God's directive became clear. What would he find there? Uh, He had no idea, but he he went anyway. Telemachus arrived in Rome during the holiday festival, and at the time Telemachus arrived, the city was bustling with excitement over the recent Roman victory over the Goths. In the midst of this jubilant commotion, the monk looked for clues as to why God had brought him there. Perhaps, he thought, it's not sheer coincidence that I've arrived at this festival time. Perhaps God has some special role for me to play. So Telemachus let the crowds guide him, and the stream of humanity soon led him into the Colosseum, where the gladiator contests were to be staged. He could hear the cries of the animals in their cages beneath the floor of the great arena and the clamor of the contestants preparing to do battle. The gladiators marched into the arena, saluted the emperor, and shouted, We who are about to die, salute thee. Telemachus shuddered. He had never heard of gladiator games before, but he had a premonition of awful violence. The crowd had come to cheer men who, for no reason other than amusement, would murder each other. Human lives were being offered for entertainment, and as the monk realized what was going to happen, he realized he could not sit still and watch such savagery. Neither could he just leave and forget. So he jumped to the top of the perimeter wall and cried out, In the name of Christ, 
forbear. The fighting began, of course. No one paid the slightest attention to the puny voice. So Telemachus pattered down the stone steps and leapt onto the sandy floor of the arena. He made a comic figure, a scrawny man in a monk's habit, dashing back and forth between muscular, armed athletes. One gladiator sent him sprawling with a blow from his shield, directing him back to his seat. It was a rough gesture, though a kind one. The crowd roared. But Telemachus refused to stop. He rushed into the way of those trying to fight, shouting again, in the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd began to laugh and cheer him on, perhaps thinking him part of the entertainment. Then his movement blocked the vision of one of the contestants, and the gladiator saw a blow coming just in time. Furious now, the crowd began to cry for blood. Run him through, they screamed. The gladiator he had blocked raised his sword and with a flash of steel struck Telemachus, slashing down across his chest and into his stomach. The little monk gasped once more in the name of Christ, forbear. Then a strange thing occurred. As the two gladiators and the crowd focused on the still form and the suddenly crimson sand, the area grew deathly, or the arena grew deathly quiet. In the silence, Someone in the top tier got up and walked out. Another followed. All over the arena, spectators began to leave until the stadium was emptied. And one writer said this, There were other forces at work, of course, but that innocent figure lying in the pool of blood crystallized the opposition, and that was the last gladiator contest in the Roman Colosseum. Never again did men kill each other for the crowd's entertainment in the Roman arena. Well, we meet a story like that in Acts chapter 7. So let me go ahead and read it for you. We're looking at Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 54 and continuing to Acts chapter 8, verse 8. And it says this, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord. Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. 
Well, I want to cover this passage in, in a fairly simple fashion today. The passage tells us something about the death of Stephen and something about the life or the growth that took place in the church as a result. So I want to draw your attention to three things we learn about death and then three things we learn about the resulting life. So firstly, we see that a Christian's death on earth leads to a welcome in heaven. You know, as you think about Stephen's death, there are some things about it that make it unique. Uh, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was the first one to be executed for testifying about his faith in Jesus. But it was also unique because Stephen was given a peek behind the curtain. He could see what was happening in heaven while he was being put to death on earth. Now, there are lots of people who have had near-death experiences, who have testified saying that they saw something in those moments, a bright light or something along those lines. And I don't know what to make of those experiences, to be honest with you. But Stephen's experience is something altogether different from that. Uh, We get this description in verses 55 and 56. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So those verses tell us that as Stephen gazed and looked into heaven, he saw two things. It says, firstly, that he saw the glory of God. Now, part of the reason that's interesting is because of the way Stephen began his speech. The very first thing he said in his speech was this, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So he begins by saying, the God of glory appeared to Abraham, and now his life ends with him seeing the glory of God, the God of glory. And we're supposed to understand that he is in the same company with Abraham. The second thing Stephen sees, though, is Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's an interesting picture. And the reason it's interesting is because of Jesus' posture. Now, there are several references to Jesus seated at the right hand of God. The book of Daniel contains a vision about the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. In three of the four Gospels, Jesus is recorded as saying this, And Jesus said, I am... And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. He was quoting from Psalm 110 when he said that. And Psalm 110 is one of the messianic psalms from the Old Testament. It's a psalm that testifies about the Messiah who was to come. Uh, It's quoted several times in the New Testament. Peter made use of it in an earlier sermon that we looked at in the book of Acts. He said... For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the thing about all of the other references is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is seated at the right hand of God. Here, as Stephen gazes into heaven, Jesus is standing. 
And why is he standing? Well, there have been a number of suggestions. The, the two most likely things that this was meant this is meant to communicate, is the way in which Jesus acts as our advocate before the Father. This is an active role that Jesus plays on our behalf. This would be along the lines of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 when he said, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So Jesus is maybe standing and he's doing just that. But the second thing standing seems to indicate is that Jesus stands to welcome Stephen as the first martyr. I mean, we do this. If someone enters our home, the, even your office, you, you stand up to greet them, to welcome them. And that kind of welcome or that kind of reception is something that all of us who have put our hope in Christ, will experience on the other side of death. We will be welcomed into heaven by Jesus. So the death of a Christian on earth leads to a welcome in heaven. The second thing we can say about the death of Stephen is that there is a way to die with dignity. And we see that in a couple of ways here. Firstly, we see it in the contrast between Stephen and his accusers. The authorities were enraged at what Stephen had to say. Verse 54 says that they ground their teeth at him. I mean, you ever just get so mad that you, you just kind of grit your teeth or you, you grind your teeth? I mean, that's the intensity of emotion that these religious leaders felt towards Stephen. By way of contrast, Stephen is as calm as can be. I mean, his demeanor through this whole episode has been steady and resolute. Earlier, we were told that his face was radiant. It was like the face of an angel. So it's clear that he knows what is coming. He knows that they are going to execute him. But his vision fills him with confidence that he will simply be passing from one life to the next. And when he speaks about this vision, when he says what he saw, the leaders rage all the more. Verses 57 and 58 say, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. It's quite a contrast. Now, just, just remember, these religious leaders... They're the well-respected ones in society. They've got a good pedigree. They are well-educated. They dress in robes. They function with decorum. But as Stephen gives his speech, they're like, ah, we can't hear you. Stephen remains calm, and they rush at him like an angry mob. Now, Stephen's death here recalls the death of another one of God's prophets from the Old Testament. And this one is especially relevant because of the connection with the temple and the law, the very two things that Stephen was on trial for. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 24. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, and Jehoiada was the priest who advised the king, after his death, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. 
And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And then it says, But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. The parallels between those two deaths, those two stonings, are eerie. Stephen's death is just like Zechariah's. He is someone God has raised up to speak to them, to call them back. But in their stubbornness, they put him to death. And that's part of what I mean. This puts Stephen in good company. That's part of what I mean by he dies with dignity. There's another part to it, though. And we see this from what Stephen said, actually from what Stephen prayed. He makes two short prayers. In verse 59, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, maybe that prayer sounds familiar to you. It should. Because it's very similar to the prayer that Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. Here's what we read in Luke's gospel. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The only difference between those two prayers is that Jesus prays to his Father, Father, receive my spirit, and Stephen prays to Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But what the content of his prayer reveals is that this is what a good death looks like. Facing death with dignity means entrusting our spirit to God's care. One of my favorite modern hymns is In Christ Alone. Uh, We sing that from time to time, and one of my favorite lines in that hymn is the one that says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Now, the reason we can say, the reason we can sing, no fear in death, is because we have entrusted our spirit to God. I remember once hearing someone ask a Christian apologist, can you really say that you're not afraid of dying? And the answer he gave was insightful. He said, look, I didn't say I'm, I'm not afraid of the process of dying, but I'm not afraid of the end result. And see, I think that's what we need to understand. There are lots of ways to die. Most of them are exceedingly painful. I don't imagine stoning was a pleasant experience. And I've got my own fears about the process of dying, but what I don't have fears about is the end result. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the first part of the answer to that question is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. See, and when you understand that, it means there is no fear in death. Stephen prays another prayer in verse 60. It says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, this one also echoes a prayer of Jesus from the cross. In Luke 23, again, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, part of what this should remind us of is, that, is what Jesus said about the relationship between disciples and teachers. He said this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Right? A disciple, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, we've noted it a couple times in the past few weeks, but it's remarkable to see how much Stephen is like Jesus, isn't it? Certainly true in his death. The other thing to note here, though, is, is related to the content of what Stephen prayed. He's being stoned to death, right? They're literally throwing rocks at him. And yet he prays, for the forgiveness of those who are stoning him. Now, most of us will never experience anything like that. But every one of us will have to decide between carrying bitterness and resentment towards those who have hurt us to the grave, and lots of people do that, or praying for their forgiveness. And the only way we can really do that is to know that we have experienced God's forgiveness to a greater degree than anyone will ever need to experience, or everyone will ever need to experience our forgiveness. Third thing this passage teaches us about death is that Christians grieve differently, but they do grieve. Sometimes we have the idea that, well, you know, because then a Christian's death on earth leads to a welcome in heaven. There's not really a place for sorrow or grief. I I don't know where we ever got that idea. Not from the Bible. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. The, The men who buried Stephen were devout. I mean, they were committed Christians. They made great lamentation over Stephen when he died. You know, as a piece of trivia, lots of people know that the shortest verse in all of the Bible is the one that simply says, Jesus wept, right? Just two words long. That verse is found in John chapter 11. And the context of that verse is that Jesus is standing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has died. Now, Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. But as he stands at the entrance of that tomb, he weeps. See, the promise of the resurrection doesn't take away the sadness that we experience at the loss of someone close to us. Now, as Christians, we do grieve differently. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
See, the reason we grieve differently is because we have hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. We know that death means separation from those we love, and so we grieve. But grief is not the end, because we know that death is not the ultimate end. So we've talked about death. Let's shift now and and look at the surprising life that emerges from the death of Stephen. And that life is seen in the growth of the church after Stephen's death. So we see it in Acts What we see in Acts 8 is really the chain reaction that takes place after Stephen is stoned to death, and there are three links to this chain. The first one is that the persecution led to a scattering. So look at at verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the death of Stephen produced what looked like a devastating blow to the early church. I mean, remember, this is a young church, right? Just getting going. Those who were opposed to the Christian faith were now emboldened to openly persecute Christians. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And that word great, a great persecution, refers both to the size of, and to the severity of that persecution. And what actually happened is described for us in verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the opposition that started out as hostility towards the apostles now spread to persecution against all who followed Jesus. Now, it's interesting when Luke recounts this, he draws attention to the fact that both men and women were being sought out as targets for the persecution. That's actually highlighted three times in the book of Acts. So here in in chapter 8, then again in chapter 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then later when Paul gives his testimony, the testimony of his conversion, he says this, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And the significance of that is probably twofold. Firstly, it's a reminder that women were significant enough in numbers and importance to the advance of the gospel, that if Saul wanted to stop the advancement of the church, he had to arrest the women as well. So in that sense, persecution is an equal opportunity employer. Both men and women experience the same fallout from this. And the inclusion of women in something like this wasn't It wasn't unprecedented. It's not like it never happened, but it was really unusual for this to take place. It's no wonder Saul would later refer to himself as the chief of sinners. And that's the second thing it shows. It really shows just how ruthless Saul was at this point. I mean, you kind of see the escalation here. First, it says he's standing, giving his approval, and then it's he's going house to house, dragging them off to prison. 
In any case, the temperature is being turned up in Jerusalem, and the result of that increase in temperature is that the Christians are scattered. Verse 1 tells us the apostles remained in Jerusalem, but most of the other followers of Jesus were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And that takes us to the next link in the chain. The first link is that the persecution led to a scattering. The second link is that the scattering led to a spreading. And by a spreading, I mean both a geographical spread and the spread of the gospel. So listen to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We've circled back to to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 uh, several times in this series. It's really the key verse of the book of Acts. And it's there that Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we're in the all Judea and Samaria part now. So these Christians, they didn't just flee Jerusalem for their safety. They preached the gospel wherever they went. And that same scenario has repeated itself many times throughout the history of the church. You might not even be aware of it this morning, but you're in a Mennonite brethren church. The Mennonites began as part of the broader Protestant Reformation. In their case, in Holland, but because of persecution, they were forced out of their homeland. They settled in Poland until it came under Prussian rule. During that period, they had to flee again. And somehow, most of them ended up living in Abbotsford. Right? That's, that's as much history as I know. But the point is that while these early Christians were driven out of their homeland and forced to scatter, they continued to share the gospel wherever they were scattered. If you haven't been around Crossridge uh, very long, you, you may not have picked up on this. But we try to refer to what we do here on Sunday mornings as our gathering or our gatherings, right? So we have a 9 a.m. gathering and we have a 1045 gathering. We do not refer to them as services because that can communicate the idea of coming and consuming something, right? Like I went to the service. We used to have a a swear jar of sorts that uh, anytime someone from the stage would make an announcement and they would refer to a service they had to put a dollar in the jar. Honestly, not a bad idea. But where we got the idea for that, this idea of gathering and scattering, is from the book of Acts. The church gathers and the church scatters. Now, we don't scatter because of persecution, right? We're not experiencing that. But when we leave here, we scatter to the places we live. We scatter to our neighborhoods and our workplaces, places we're involved in the community. We scatter to Cloverdale and to Surrey and to Langley and to White Rock and to Delta. And hopefully as we do that, we understand that we are on mission. The scattering ought to lead to a spreading. Now this 
account in Acts chapter 7 and 8 is really another example of the devil's failed attempt to destroy the church. We stop to note that he has tried to destroy it from opposition from without, corruption from within, and distraction. None of it has worked. And I found John Stott's summary to be helpful. He said, what is plain is that the devil who lurks behind all persecution of the church overreached himself. His attack had the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. So if we're thinking about the links in the chain, the first one is that persecution led to a scattering. The second one is that the scattering led to a spreading. And the third one is that the spreading led to joy. Listen again to verses 5 to 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. You know, there's a reason we refer to the gospel as good news. Part of it is because that's literally what the word means. It means good news. But these verses help us understand why it is such good news. And you can see here that there are multiple dimensions to the good news, right? There's both physical and spiritual healing that takes place in those who hear and respond to the message. Produces joy because of that. There's also another kind of healing that we might be easy to overlook. But we can see it if we stop and think about where Philip was when he was preaching this message and people were responding to it. Philip and those who were scattered went about preaching the gospel in Samaria. Now, we're a couple, we're a couple of months removed from uh, Christmas, but it's good to go back and just listen to the angel's announcement about that very first Christmas. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 1. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The birth of Jesus brought about good news of great joy for all people, including the people of Samaria. Now, if you know the history, you know that there was a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it wasn't just that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Jews thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds. They were less than human in their minds. Philip, because he's scattered, goes down to the city of Samaria and he preaches a gospel that obliterates all those types of distinctions. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. It is good news that leads to great joy for all people. That's actually the flow of the book of Acts. It begins in Jerusalem, goes to Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. 
everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, the result is the same. It's joy. Listen to this passage from Acts chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Whatever else might be said about us as Christians, we ought to be known as people of joy. When we understand the gospel, when we understand our relationship with God is restored, when we understand our sins are forgiven, that's the good news that leads to great joy for all the people. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that is ours. We thank you that in Christ we have joy, regardless of the circumstances we face. We thank you for this. We thank you for the history of of the church. We thank you for those who have gone before us, who have been faithful, people like Stephen, who have testified about your goodness, who have even experienced death at the hands of those opposed to it, and yet you have built your church and you've invited us to be part of it, and you have given us your spirit, and you have given us joy. And I pray we would live in the fullness of that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.